ask from Congress. We've seen Congress be engaged in a variety of ways, and this is where Congress needs to come in as well. We've been working with Congress, and we need to continue to work with Congress to create one single federal landscape. It still is the case that we have got to have Congress help us find a, a single legal model. Obviously hard to get things through Congress right now. Both chambers of Congress understand the issues and want to help us. And this is where Congress needs to come in as well, to ask from Congress, to work with the schools and with Congress. We need the help of Congress. We're, if you, Congress, want college sports to continue in these fashions over here, we need your help and your assistance to do that. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. I also have a blog that you can check out. The name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you want to reach out to me, please do so. You can shoot me an email at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is April 1st, 2022. And no, those quotes from Mark Emmert in the opening montage are not an April Fool's joke. Those are real comments that Emmert delivered during his annual Final Four press conference, and he sat for that yesterday. And in this episode, I'm going to look at what Emmert had to say and some of the tactics that he employed to position the NCAA and the Power Five to return to Congress for the federal bailout it's been seeking really since 2019 when the NCAA and Power Five went on offense and asked Congress for their help. Well, Mark, ask and you shall receive. But before I get to this ridiculous dissembling that Emmert engaged in during this press conference, I want to zoom out a little bit because this press conference has gotten a lot of attention. I think some of it was fueled by the fact that Coach K sat for his presser immediately before Emmert and he made some comments that went to some concerns that he has had for a long time, I think, about the way that the NCAA has regulated men's basketball. And he has some pretty good thoughts on that, wouldn't you think? Being the best uh, coach in the history of the game of basketball. But the NCAA has given him the stiff arm. And I don't think that there's a lot of love loss between Emmert and then Dan Gavitt, who is the NCAA guy in charge of men's basketball and Coach K. And he's made some comments in the past that uh, suggest that he's not crazy about the job that Gavitt has done. But putting that aside, Coach K also made some comments about who, who's in charge here. And I'm going to get to those because Dana O'Neill, a, a writer with The Athletic, essentially channeled Coach K and, and asked Mark Emmert that question. And uh, he did his bob and weave, and, and we'll get to that as well. But this annual press conference has been criticized for a long, long time. And I think because of the unique features of this Final Four, Coach K's uh, swan song here and his stature in college basketball, his comments, I think, gave permission to other people in the sports commentariat to say out loud what a lot of people have been thinking for a long, long time. And that is, why the hell is Mark Emmert still the NCAA president? And I've been asking that question and analyzing that issue for a long time now. And that's been a theme in my podcast, which I started over a year ago in March of 2021. But one of the things I think that is an important overlay to this whole discussion is that when you go back and you look at Emmert's tenure, you see that these concerns have been raised again and again and again uh, in the past more subtly than I think what we saw yesterday. But this goes to the heart of leadership. And Coach K, as I've discussed in some of my prior episodes, those episodes around the, his final game in Cameron on March 5th, Coach K is a leader. 
and he values leadership, and he is an exceptional leader, and he's proven that not just in basketball, but in important things outside of basketball, particularly in connection with the growth of Duke University and his interaction with the Durham community, and I've talked all about that. But I think Coach K is one of these people who believes that leadership matters, and I think a lot of people don't see it that way, and they think, well, Mark Emmert's just the messenger. And Mark Emmert's just doing what the commercial interests want him to do. He's just a mouthpiece. And if it wasn't Mark Emmert, it would be somebody else. And I think that is just dead wrong. Leadership does matter. And Mark Emmert has been anti-leadership. And he expressed that quite clearly in the cowardly way that he dodged responsibility for any of the things that have happened in uh, college sports over these transformative last couple of years. And he fell back on that same tired talking point that we heard from Miles Brand early in his tenure. We heard it in the 2003 hearings in the Senate when he said, look, don't blame me. I'm just the conduit. I'm just the messenger. and I'm just doing the will of the membership. Mark Emmert used that very same tactic in this interview to deflect responsibility from his failed leadership. And leaders, true leaders, don't do that. They own it. And one of the things about this interview is that Mark Emmert employed the same tactic that Bob Bowlesby did in that Aspen Institute forum on February tw uh, 25th of 2022. And that is he assumed the position of the omniscient neutral observer. He's just making comments, detached comments, as if he is just an independent third party analyzing the current state of college sports. And that tactic alone speaks to his failure as the titular leader of college sports. And uh, it remains to be seen if this embarrassing press conference, like all the others that, that Emmert has conducted in connection with the Final Four, is truly an inflection point because you had somebody of Coach K's stature basically calling Emmert out. I don't know. But I had people sending me articles by well-respected sports journalists who were all channeling that same thing, and their tone was a little bit different than it has been in the past. It was much more critical, I think, of Emmert personally and his failed leadership. And I think these writers, uh, many of whom have played both sides of the fence because in many ways they're part of the same ecosystem and they've been very deferential to the NCAA over the years. But I think we have uh, gotten to a, a critical point where people outside of an NCAA national office are feeling free to speak about their disdain for the NCAA national office, its governing boards, and the way that it has just flown this plane into the side of the mountain during the last couple of years. And, of course, the Twittersphere was all abuzz with some of the commentary that was coming out of these pressers and then the follow-up commentary from sports journalists. And that's a nice thing to do, and you get a, a shot in here and there, and it gets a lot of retweets and all that kind of stuff. But I want to just, for a second, go back into the archives a little bit, because I was doing some basic Google searches to look for information on the pressers and, and then how it was covered. And what was interesting to me is that in the search results in the first couple of pages, there were virtually identical kind of themes that were coming up going back as far as 2013. So I did a, a search that says a Mark Emmert Final Four Comments video. I was actually looking for this video. It was hard to find and it's not on the NCAA website. Surprise, surprise. But the very first search return is this, Mark Emmert's Final Four press conference, a disaster in tweets from April 4th, 2013. And then, let's see, from the same year, there's a entry from uh, Yahoo Sports, attitude, organizational shortcomings, make NCAA president vulnerable. And then in, there were some entries from 2020 when there was all this discussion about the Power Five leaving the NCAA out of frustration with the national office. That kind of died down. And then last year, of course, with the women's basketball tournament debacle, Mark Emmert just got beaten up. And his press conference last year was uh, just as dissembling as his one was this year. But the point of that 
is that these themes are not new, yet guess what? Mark Emmert's still sitting behind the microphone in 2022, serving up the same garbage that he's been serving up since he began his tenure in 2010. So despite all the criticism, despite the obvious fact that Mark Emmert is a terrible leader, he has been a train wreck from a college sports uh, messaging standpoint and a regulatory standpoint and a values standpoint. Yet here he is, 12 years, 12 years. And the reason that Mark Emmert has sat in the NCAA president's chair for 12 years is it because the people who are in charge of hiring and firing him, and that is the NCAA Board of Governors, they and they alone hire and fire the NCAA president. They set the terms of his employment. They set the terms of his uh, contract and, and salary. And the NCAA president and Mark Emmert as NCAA president has reported to the NCAA Board of Governors and only the NCAA Board of Governors. The way the incestuous and star chamber-like governance structure exists at the NCAA national office, Mark Emmert really doesn't have a direct connection to the membership, which makes it all the more ironic that when pressed on his failures of leadership, he points the finger at the membership. And he uses that same tactic that Brand used. Hey, don't blame me. I'm just doing the will of the membership. If you have a problem, you have to talk to all those 1,100 schools and the leaders at those 1,100 schools. They are the NCAA. They make the rules. I don't make the rules. I am just the messenger. I'm just the vessel. But I think the, the failure in leadership here that we're seeing is not just a failure of leadership in college sports. It is a failure of leadership in higher education because the members of the Board of Governors that Mark Emmert has been reporting to are comprised overwhelmingly of university presidents and chancellors. And remember, they demanded to have that power through the Knight Commission's work. And they believed that only university presidents could rein in the out-of-control commercialization and professionalization in big-time college sports. And they demanded a seat at the table, and they demanded absolute control over the governance process. And guess what? They got it. And it is the university presidents and chancellors on the Board of Governors and the Division I Board of Directors that have created the mess that they now, through this new constitutional makeover, have left to themselves to correct. So even in this new governance structure that Emmert was touting during this press conference through the makeover of the Constitution and then the work of this Transformation Committee, when you look at who is actually on that committee, you have the same people who are in charge now of modernizing college sports. So this message they've been saying for years, while behind the scenes, they're trying to take the college sports regulatory model and the relationship to the athletes back to the 1950s. And that's exactly what they're going to continue to do. They've just changed the rhetoric. But you have these people in charge on this transformation committee who are the ultimate NCAA insiders. And if you look carefully at the messaging that's come from the Division I Board of Directors during this constitutional debate and then through this transformation committee, they are doing nothing more than doubling down on the same corrupt values and governance philosophies that got us into this mess in the first place. And I talked at length about it in my episodes on this Constitution Committee. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to those. I go through that process in great detail and I explain how this Transformation Committee is nothing more than a Power 5 football power grab. And I think it's important to point out that it was just April of 2021, a year ago, that the NCAA Board of Governors voted unanimously, unanimously, not a single dissenting vote on the extension of Mark Emmert's contract into 2025. And on that board of the 21 voting members, there were 16 university presidents and chancellors, the very people who were supposed to be in control of big-time college sports. And when Coach K asked those fundamental questions of who the hell is in charge here, and Dana O'Neill channeled that, Mark Emmert did not speak in terms of presidential leadership. He was simply saying, hey, it's not me. It's somebody else, and you need to talk to the member institutions. I'm just the guy who is sitting in the seat, doing the will of the membership. And I, I think what you heard from Mark Emmert yesterday is a perfect 
example of the failure of leadership in higher education writ large, particularly among the Power Five presidents who are benefiting from this professionalized, commercialized, big-time college sports marketplace. And I talked about that in my episode on Holden Thorpe's interview, a podcast interview that he gave uh, a few weeks ago. And the, the problem here is not just a college sports problem. It is a presidential leadership problem. And, and Thorpe spoke to that, I think, more indirectly than he spoke to the sports issues. But you have these university presidents who are doing everything in their power to keep the gravy train rolling, to avoid controversy, and they are always looking for gold stars on their resume. That is a substitute for leadership in the 21st century, and it aligns with the branding and marketing value system and philosophy in higher education. That has really, I think, been a problem at the values level. And another important part of the dynamic in the failed leadership, not just in higher education, but particularly in college sports in the NCAA context, is that these university presidents operate in a strict code of omerta that would make a mob boss blush. I mean, these people will not speak honestly about the failed leadership in the presidential model and at the NCAA through Mark Emmert. And remember, we've had university presidents in charge of the NCAA since 2003, when Miles Brand took over. He was the former president at Indiana University. I've talked quite a bit about that. Emmert took over in 2010. He had been the president at the University of Washington, and he had been at LSU, and he had been at Connecticut. He, you know, he was playing that game. He was moving up. He was also one of the most highly compensated university presidents in America when he left Washington for the NCAA, where he got a pay increase. There probably aren't many jobs in higher education, and I view the NCAA as a higher education job, given the presidential control leadership model and the fact that it operates in the context of higher education. But Emmert moves from the University of Washington. I don't know what he was making there, a couple million dollars. And now he's making between 2.7 and $4 million, depending on the year. And I think that's true for a lot of university presidents. They want to pad their resume. They want to go for the money. And they do everything in their power to make their tenure look as successful as as possible. And that, that gets into something that Thorpe said in that interview. He said, these people, these presidents, he was speaking specifically about university presidents. They're not there to make the institution better, even if it means taking a hit on their resume. They are there to get the gold stars, to uh, position themselves for the next move, or to leave their tenure with a bunch of gold stars on the wall. And that was, I think, an interesting insight. And Mark Emmert is a gold star kind of guy. And he likes big, bright, shiny, expensive gold stars. Yet there he sits on March 31st of 2022 behind the microphone still collecting his $2.7 million salary. So uh, what I want to do here is go through Emmert's interview and uh, his statements, and then he got questions from reporters. And there were some really good questions. I thought the reporters were, I think, doing their, their job in this case, asking Emmert some important questions that he is so adept at dodging. And there's no doubt that he was fully prepped for this particular press conference, and there were certain things that he was trying to get into the record and certain things he was not going to talk about. And I'll get to some of those things. But there were like five or six important issues that came up that I just want to talk a little bit about. Uh, some of these I have uh, talked and written about extensively. I'm just going to refer you back to my prior work on that. But what we basically got were uh, classic NCAA talking points. And it's my belief, having listened to this, I listened to this a couple times. I made a transcript and I, I do that with these interviews because you really need to see it in writing to appreciate some of the the misdirection. But in my, my view of this presser was that Emmert's audience was the United States Senate. And you have to remember that in the last just few weeks, there's been increased activity at the congressional level that is anti-NCAA. And remember, the NCAA went to Congress and they thought they were going to steamroll it when the Republicans were in control in 2020. They didn't get what they wanted, thank God. And now with the Democrats in control and some of the pressures that are being exerted at the executive branch level, like the misclassification of employees issue that Michael Shu is pursuing and then the 
National College Players Association is pursuing. And then we have a complaint with the Office of Civil Rights, and we have the Johnson suit as well. You have all these things. In addition to that, now we have a, a renewed effort to get this NCAA Accountability Act passed. That bill came out in the House of Representatives in early November of 2021 from a Tennessee representative that was a bipartisan bill, and all the sponsors were Power Five state representatives, and I think that's important. And I'm going to talk about that in some length because I think that's a little misunderstood. And uh, under that bill, the NCAA infractions and enforcement process would be basically put into federal receivership. <laughs> it purports to offer some due process requirements and some time limitations for any enforcement and infractions action and some draconian penalties and all that. But just last week, a Cory Booker and who's a Democrat from New Jersey in the Senate, and Marsha Blackburn, who is a Republican from Tennessee in the Senate, and she is no fan of the NCAA and, and Mark Emmert. They introduced the companion bill to that House bill, and it's, it, it's identical, and I'm going to talk about that, but that creates the, the impression that there's some more pressure coming from Congress. And then you have a Carol Maloney, I believe, and Jackie Spence beer on the House side, making some noise, renewed noise, because they were talking about this a year ago. But uh, And I've talked about that in, my, in the podcast. But they have renewed their request for legislation that's going to force the NCAA to actually do something on gender equity. Emmer did a separate press conference on gender equity, and it's a joke. I mean, the NCAA has been hostile to gender equity issues in college sports since 1972, and I've talked quite a bit about that. So you have all of these legislative issues floating around. And then just a couple of days ago, you had a really interesting and I think well-produced forum held by congressional Democrats, both on the Senate and the House side. So you had Chris Murphy, you had Cory Booker, you had Richard Blumenthal, you had Lori Trahan, and they had athletes talking. They were talking about athletes' rights. And what I really liked about the way that was framed and structured is that the starting point was American principles and American freedoms and the athletes' rights, not the institutional interests. And I'm going to talk about that at some point as well, because I really liked the messaging there. And I think that it's important that the staffers of those senators have really stayed on the ball here. They're the, the behind-the-scenes heroes, I think, in keeping these issues alive. But they talked about some of these things and had some interesting panel discussions. But you have all this activity that is just popping up right now. And the feel, the vibe in the public narrative on the NCAA and the regulation of college sports and the relationship between the institutional beneficiaries and the athletes is really not friendly to in-system stakeholder beneficiary themes and narratives. I'm going to talk about all that stuff because that's on the list to, to talk about as the Transformation Committee is doing its, its work. And I had teed that up really in late January, and I've been pulled to these other things. We're going to come back to that, but almost all of these issues through the lens of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries come back around to a congressional bailout. And when you look at Mark Emmert's comments in this presser and his response to questions, he was very clearly prepped and he very clearly emphasized and used every opportunity to weave his responses to those questions back to congressional intervention. Congress, 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 Congress. And that's what you heard in the opening montage. And I think one of the most interesting comments that Emmert made was in response to a question from that question from Dana O'Neill. And Emmert was talking about changing the legal landscape. So he's talking about all these challenges in the legal landscape and the regulatory landscape and the congressional landscape and all this stuff that are the direct product of the NCAA's failure to do anything on athletes' rights for decades. But in response to those threats, the way that Emmert answered O'Neill's question, he wasn't saying, look, we have come to the reality of a new world in college sports post-Austin, post-nil debacle, and we have all these other external regulatory threats and challenges popping up. He's not saying we're going to change our business model. What he actually said was that rather than voluntarily conform to these new realities, we are going to change the legal 
landscape. And let me just pull this up here, my transcript. And this, he transitions from, oh, it's not me as the NCAA president. Who's in charge? It's the member institutions. Don't look at me. I'm just the messenger here doing the will of the people. Then he transitions into this. He says, but we also have to help them, meaning that member institutions, determine what it is they want to ask from Congress. He says, the legal landscape, and he used that phrase again and again, as it exists today, which is post-Austin, simply will not support and sustain the way that college sports is conducted today. So we need to help change that landscape. He's not saying change our behavior. He's saying change the landscape. If people want to continue to see events like this championship being conducted the way it's been conducted, and, and I had this tournament put on full display, the beauty of college sports, and then he's talking about the women's tournament and all these really great teams, and everybody loves it, and, and we have it now. And then he says, we will work with the schools and with Congress to make sure that we continue that. That's the direction that we need to go. And we've got, again, a relatively short window of time in my estimate. So he's doing several things there. The most important of which is saying, we're not going to change our conduct. We're not going to change our values. We're not going to change our business model. We're going to change the legal landscape. And the only way to do that is through Congress. And he was asked some questions about the Austin suit, and those were equally disingenuous. And uh, Austin wasn't a nine to zero ass whipping. It was an opportunity for the NCAA to have some clarity, because I think it was I can't remember. Maybe it was Mike DeCourcy who asked why they appealed the Austin decision. And the reason they appealed the Austin decision was because they were seeking absolute antitrust immunity and they got their asses kicked. They, they overreached. And that was really a theme in Justice Gorsuch's opinion, the main opinion. And, and I think Kavanaugh picked up on that in his concurring opinion. But Emmert still had to point out, yeah, well, I, we had some excellent legal arguments. And I think there's still excellent legal arguments, even though they just got slapped down by a unanimous Supreme Court. You just, again, you just can't make this stuff up. And, you know, Emmert is an unapologetic dissembler and propagandist. That's what he's paid to do. And that's what he's going to continue to do. And Emmert noted in response to that question that, yeah, one of these points of clarity that they got out of the Supreme Court's decision was that, well, we didn't get what we wanted from the U.S. Supreme Court, but we can get it from Congress. So the Supreme Court's telling us to focus our efforts on Congress, 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 Congress. But back to his response to O'Neill's question. He's saying, we're going to change the landscape. And again, the only way to do that is through a uh, bill in Congress that grants the NCAA the antitrust immunity that it didn't get in Austin and to get preemption of state laws and to get a declaration that athletes can't be employees. He doesn't say those things, but that's what he's talking about here. And then he ties the necessity for that change and the necessity for congressional action to what the consequences would be if that doesn't happen. And then he ties it into the final four. He's saying, look, everything that we're seeing here, the beauty of this tournament, the pageantry in college sports and college basketball, and this shining symbol of everything that's great about college sports will be at risk if we don't get what we want. So now he's got another sky is falling narrative. If we don't get what we want from Congress, then the final four as we know it will come to a fatal collapse. And that is not a message for fans. That is not a message for coaches or for the sports media. That is a message for the United States Senate and the United States House of Representatives. That's who he's talking to. And their propaganda campaign is directed to Congress, to no one else. And I, I did an entire episode on that, that everything that is coming out of the in-system stakeholder beneficiary class post-constitutional makeover, which is post-Austin, post-Nil meltdown, all of this propaganda and the new positioning the NCAA is trying on to see if it fits. And I think that's what he was doing with this Final Four thing. But the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are targeting Congress. And an interesting blurb came out in the Chronicle of Higher Education day before yesterday that caught my eye. That's one of the periodicals that I read. I, I get the web version every day. But Phil DeStefano, who is the president at uh, Colorado Boulder, and he's a former member of the NCAA Board of Governors, he came out and was talking about what a mess the name, image, and likeness market is and how it is an existential threat to college sports. But he said that he personally was lobbying Congress and he knew that other Power Five presidents were doing the same 
thing. So there is an entire world of advocacy that's going on behind the scenes. And I've talked about this uh, in prior episodes as well. The uh, re-engagement with Congress isn't going to run through Mark Emmert and the NCAA. He's bad news there. He's just pissed people off left and right. It's going to run through the Power Five. It's going to run through Power Five uh, senators in Power Five states. And you're going to see conference commissioners and university presidents going directly to those senators. Everybody's saying, oh, the NCAA doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell in Congress. I don't think that's true. And I think the fact that you have Mark Emmert targeting this press conference to the United States Senate, I believe that's what he was doing, I think is evidence of that. They haven't given up. They're using the same messaging and wrapping it up in different clothes. And they're going to use anything that they can to get back control of the regulatory model and to eliminate external regulatory threats. That hasn't gone away. And just as we don't remember what the college sports environment was just six months ago, in six months to a year, we're not going to remember what Mark Emmert said on March 31st of 2022 or what Coach K said on March 31st of 2022. And when Mark Emmert says, we've got a short period of time to do this, we've got a year or two years, what he's really saying is, we're going to have the work of this transformation committee that's going to be, again, positioned to make a friendly case to Congress for federal protections and immunities. And then we have perhaps the most important thing on the horizon, and that is the midterm elections. And after the midterm elections, if the Republicans regain control of the Senate, it's a whole new ball game. And you have all kinds of in-system stakeholder beneficiaries pointing to that and acknowledging that. Tom McMillan, who is head of this Lead One organization, which is a trade association for Power Five athletics directors, essentially, and he's been pumping out propaganda for years on their behalf. But in his latest installment of a newsletter on name, image, and likeness, he says, this needs to land in Congress, and it's going to be a different day if the Republicans regain control of the Senate. And I believe that's true. So I think that's what a lot of the positioning is right now. And I just think that we have to look at that with clear eyes. And we're going to wait and see what's happening in some of these other pathways that have popped up just in the last few weeks. But I think you would be silly to rule out the NCAA given the decades-long connections that it's made into the most powerful institutions in America. So let me just zip right through this transcript right quick. I hadn't anticipated getting up an episode before the weekend and the final four, but when I saw this press conference, I just had to try to throw this in. So I'm doing this on the fly. So if you're wondering how I think out loud, I think you're getting it right now. But let's see, I've talked about that. Let's see. I'm going to come back to that. And let's see. Dan Walken asked about the Kansas thing and, you know, what's going on in infractions and enforcement. And Amber brought up that tired talking point about the inefficiency of the independent accountability resolution process. That's the boogeyman. That's a Greg Sankey talking point. I've talked quite a bit about that in my episodes leading up to an analysis of the Constitutional Convention and then on the backside of that. But that is a myth to the extent they're suggesting that the old process, the infractions and enforcement process to, through the NCAA national office was more efficient. And Emmert says, well, this independent accountability resolution process is reinvestigating facts. Well, that was precisely what they were supposed to do because the recommendations from the Commission on College Basketball made quite clear that we couldn't trust the old process to get it right because it's fraught with corruption and conflicts of interest. And we've just completely lost sight of that. And so the new talking point is taking all this time. But in prior episodes, I, I talked about the fact that there were two cases that arose from the same core of facts, this basketball scandal and the prosecutions in the Southern District of New York in 2018. One related to NC State, which went through the new system, this IARP system. The other was the Auburn case, which did not. It went through the other old system and by implication from these comments by Emmert and Sankey, a more efficient process. Those two cases were uh, resolved on exactly the same time frame. The Auburn decision was released, the, the, the case that went through the old system, it was released on December 10th of 2021. The NC State decision from the IARP through the new process came out on December 20th of 2021. 
21. And none of these cases were even referred to the process until 2020 and into 2021 because the infrastructure for that process wasn't up and running until August of 2019. And uh, Greg Sankey was leading the charge on that. And then all of a sudden, Sankey's in charge of this transformation committee. And we have this new constitution. And one of the primary philosophies is that we're going to redo infractions and enforcement in Division One, And we're not going to uh, allow this system to run wild. And again, the Power Five having their own infractions and enforcement process is something that they've wanted for years. And that was uh, part of their campaign for autonomy legislation in 2013 and 2014. They didn't get that component. But now with this new autonomy 2.0 that ran through this new constitution, they do get that. And I think that was why Sankey was so critical of the process. But now Mark Emmert's doing the two-step and he's singing that song. But where the hell was Mark Emmert years ago on this? We haven't heard Mark Emmert speaking like this. It's only under the duress of external regulatory threats like this NCAA Accountability Act that Emmert's finally coming to heel to how the Power Five see infractions and enforcement. And then another thing that Emmert suggested in this interview is that the reason that we have this Constitution Committee was to decentralize the regulation of college sports, decentralize it, to take power from the national level, send it down to the divisions, and that that's something that has always needed to be done. And I've talked about this as well. That's a very clever deflection to justify the fact that the NCAA has been forced to do this by external regulatory threats, the very external regulatory threats they tried to eliminate in their campaign in the Senate starting in 2019. And what the NCAA was seeking then and what it is now seeking now in different clothes is a restoration of the national authority of the NCAA. There was no discussion in any of these hearings from February of 2020 through September of 2021 in both chambers of Congress about the NCAA needing to send down authorities from the national structure down to the divisions. In fact, they were asking for the exact opposite. And it is my belief that if the NCAA had gotten any of the federal protections and immunities that they sought in their campaign in 2020 and 2021, we're not having this discussion. There is no constitution committee. There isn't an urgent need to completely rethink and reimagine and restructure the governance of college sports. And I can promise you that if the NCAA gets on the backside of this dishonest campaign, they're relaunching now, or the Power Five's relaunching now in Congress to get these federal protections and immunities, all of a sudden the NCAA is back in business at the national level and the Power Five can continue to hide in the NCAA umbrella to avoid all of the potential legal issues that they would have to deal with if they left the NCAA. And I've talked about that as well. I did an episode on why the Power Five don't leave the NCAA. But on the backside of any congressional action going forward that gives them some or all of the protections they were seeking, preemption, antitrust immunity, and athletes can't be employees, if they get some or all of those things, then they have pressed the clock back and they have undone Austin and they have undone the nil debacle. They still have the employee thing, I think might be a tough sell. And that hasn't gotten the proper attention and discussion. It's finally getting some now because of these misclassification issues and then this Johnson suit in the Third Circuit. But if that happens, and I, again, I can't rule out that possibility because you just don't understand how powerful these people are. And they are working behind the scenes double time right now with their lawyers and lobbyists to make that happen. They are in the full court press. And you would never know that from the way that Mark Emmert characterized the NCAA and the Power Five in this press conference. You have to read the transcript and you have to pull out all the references to congressional action and a congressional bailout to really understand what he was doing in this presser. And I think it's also important to point out that while there has been tension between the Power Five interests, mainly the Power Five football interests, and the NCAA, and that goes back to the 1970s, and you had these threats that the Power Five were going to leave, and they did that in 2013, 2014. Actually, they did it in 1978. And then there were suggestions that they renewed that in 2020 during the fall football discussions. But you have to understand that while there has been this tension, and people have the perception that the NCAA NCAA is not aligned with the interests of the Power Five. That is simply not the case when it comes to the regulatory authority and the legal immunities that would attach to the NCAA and then benefit the Power Five. So 
in their congressional campaign in the Senate beginning in 2019 and continuing through into 2021, the NCAA and the Power Five were marching in lockstep at the values level and what they actually wanted from Congress. The Power Five came in in May of 2020, and they tried to make the case that things needed to move quicker than they were with the NCAA behind the wheel. But they were still aligned in what they wanted from Congress. And the same is true in the federal antitrust litigation. They were lockstep with the NCAA in, in white, O'Bannon and Austin. And the reason that they're in lockstep is it because the Power Five benefits from any federal protections and immunities that would protect the NCAA. And the Power Five have no independent standing unless they left the NCAA altogether. They're not going to do that. They're under the NCAA umbrella. They've gotten everything that they wanted. They've wrested control of governance from the NCAA through this constitutional makeover. But these protections would reside with the NCAA. The Power Five and the divisions have no independent legal standing so long as they're operating under the NCAA umbrella. So we would be reverting back if they get these federal protections and immunities to the status quo that existed before Austin, before the nil issue. That's where they're headed. And I just think you can't rule out the possibility that they have a shot at that. And again, we'll see what happens on that. But Mark Embert's suggestion that this complete restructure of governance and sending all these authorities down to the divisions, that's something that absolutely needed to happen and it always needed to happen. That discussion didn't exist prior to July 1st of 2021. It simply didn't exist. And then two weeks later, on July 15th, of 2021. Mark Emmert's going in front of every camera he can find. He's on his charm uh, offensive, and the NCAA website is making him look to be the savior of college sports. He's saying, we have to reimagine college sports, and we really need to do it, and do it immediately, immediately. This has to happen. And it, that's just BS. It's complete Mark Emmert, NCAA BS. Now I want to talk a little bit about a question that Dennis Dodd asked, and Dodd's with CBS, and I've talked about him before. He, he does some good work, but you know he, he's in the ecosystem. You're writing for CBS, but he asked a good question of Emmert. So um, Dodd asks, in, in every legal challenge involving compensation, the NCAA's tack has been for years that consumer interest will decline that ratings will go down, that it will be the end of college sports as we know it. And the reason that Dodd is putting it in that context is that in these antitrust suits, where the NCAA is called upon to defend its amateurism-based compensation limits, they have made the argument as their pro-competitive justification that amateurism was essential to the product because without it, consumers would flee. Basically, if athletes got paid, and they've made this argument for decades, that if athletes got paid a penny above the scholarship limit, whatever it was, then consumers would be turned off because there is a consumer preference for amateurs playing college sports. And it was that theory that the Supreme Court ripped apart and that Brett Kavanaugh ripped apart. But that has been the logic. And what Dodd asks is that, look, you've made this argument, but we're looking at this tournament and there doesn't seem to be much of a decrease in consumer demand. And in fact, Dan Gavitt, when he had the microphone at the beginning of this presser after Ember made his opening comments, Gavitt just goes through point by point how valuable this tournament is, how the ratings have gone up, how the advertising revenue has gone up, how attendance has gone up. This is the greatest thing to, that's happened in college sports for years. And he is saying this is not just a return to our 2019 baseline. It is an improvement in our 2019 baseline. So the games go on and everybody's making money and everybody's happy and consumers could not be happier. He uses the word joy. They're joyful. It's a joyful event. And everybody who is part of that event is experiencing joy not despairs. So Emmert uh, bobs and weaves. And this tells you how he's been prepped for this press conference. And his response is, well, Dennis, first of all, we're in litigation. So I'm going to refrain from commenting on anything that involves any ongoing litigation. What is he talking about there? He is talking about the house suit out in California, where the plaintiffs, the athletes are really relitigating the name, image, and likeness issue. Issue. It's O'Bannon 2.0, and it survived a motion to dismiss. It's going forward. 
You've got the same lawyers, Steve Berman and Jeffrey Kessler, who were involved in O'Bannon and in Austin. And it's got a ways to go procedurally. But that case poses all kinds of threats to the NCAA. And statements like Gavitt's are the kind of statements that the plaintiff's lawyers are just loving because they're going to quote those statements in their legal briefs and in their arguments for the proposition that making the case that there has been any diminution in consumer demand for college sports because of name, image, and likeness compensation is an absurdity. It has always been an absurdity. And it took 12 years of federal antitrust litigation in O'Bannon and Austin, where they made the same pro-competitive justification that amateurism is essential because consumers will flee if uh, these guys get paid. They made those arguments in both cases, and they were just dismantled. And then the United States Supreme Court unanimously agreed with that and finally put an end to that ridiculous argument. But you know, one of the things that I've done in this podcast is to focus on, on the games go on theme, to put that to rest, because that is the bedrock of the justification for amateurism-based compensation limits. And it still is. It still is. They're still making that argument less directly than they, they made it before. And who knows what their pro-competitive justifications might uh, look like or evolve into in this house suit. But the natural experiment, these experts in these antitrust cases, they pontificate about what might happen and they do surveys and they make projections. But the experts for the athletes, Dan Rasher and Roger Knoll, both said that the, the best evidence is what is called a natural experiment, where you look at what's actually happening in the market. And by Dan Gavitt's admission, and quite frankly, by Mark Emmert's admission, because in his opening statements, he's talking about how wonderful this tournament is and how wonderful it is. We need to preserve it, the, the sanctity of this tournament. But, you know, Nolan Rasher said, look, let's look at what actually happens and what actually is happening and has happened as certain of these compensation limits have been relaxed. You, you see that consumer demand for college sports has exploded. It has absolutely exploded. And then after the COVID crisis and this uh, kind of artificial suppression of the market, and this was true in economic sectors across the country, it was also true for college sports. But after that suppression, a lot of people were saying, we know, is it going to come back? What's it going to look like? On the backside of that, it is not only returning to baseline, it's getting better and better and better. And there's no way that the NCAA is going to be able to go into that house case and argue with a straight face that consumers have a preference for amateurism and NCAA regulatory authority and NCAA compensation limits. And if we don't have those, then the market's going to fall apart and consumers are going to flee. I think that argument has been put to rest. But that was what Emmert was thinking when he was responding to Dodd's question. He didn't want his response to that question to be the opening paragraph in the next brief that the plaintiff's attorneys file in the house suit. And then there's one more thing I just want to point out, and then I'm going to close this thing out. And this was some of Emmert's commentary in response to that question by Mike DeCourcy. He's with the Sporting News. And he wanted to know why the NCAA appealed the Austin case and how that decision was made. And Emmert went into his BS discussion about, yeah, we lost nine to zero, but boy, we came away with some good information. And now things are much clearer to us. And that's a good thing. But He's speaking about this in this detached way that suggests that he had absolutely nothing to do with this decision. And on that point, he says, well, the decisions around those things are made by the board. And by the board, he means the Board of Governors, because under the NCAA Constitution, at least the old one, the NCAA Board of Governors was specifically charged with the exclusive responsibility for deciding whether to initiate or settle litigation. So the litigation decisions ran through the Board of Governors. And while that's technically true, what Emmert conveniently leaves out is that he and Donald Remy, the, the two people in a pod who were just enamored with their newfound power inside the Beltway and their connections to all these high-powered D.C. lobbying firms and D.C. lawyers, more, more particularly with respect to the Austin case, that they felt like they were going to just run the table in eliminating external regulators. And they were getting two bites at the apple. They were asking for antitrust immunity in Congress. They're also asking for it in the Austin case. That's why they appealed. The only reason they appealed was to get the antitrust immunity issue before the United States Supreme Court. And so when Emmert comes back around and talks about the decision-making process about why they handled that appeal, he says, 
Well, I don't. I don't have the authority, nor should I have the authority to say, okay, fine, we're going to appeal to the Supreme Court. Technically, that's true. And technically, the Board of Governors makes that decision. So then he goes on to say in his deflection tactic, he says, that's a decision that's made in debated discussion with our board. In this particular case, it involved the other plaintiffs. I think he meant the other defendants, which included a number of conferences, the Power Five conferences, who were also defendants in that lawsuit, and they were marching lockstep with the NCAA. And Emmert says, so it was the conference lawyers, the NCAA lawyers, our external lawyers, all sitting down and making a decision and networking with the Board of Governors at the NCAA to move forward on it. So, I mean, that's just a breathtaking deflection. But that comment about who was really making the the decisions, I think, is really important here. It was the NCAA lawyers. The conference lawyers probably weighed in, but the NCAA lawyers were driving the train and they were making the, the arguments to the federal courts. Seth Waxman argued in the Ninth Circuit and in the U.S. Supreme Court. He represents the NCAA not really the conferences to the extent that they were acting independent of each other. And I don't think they really were. But you have Emmert suggesting that he personally had absolutely nothing to do with this. But it was he and Don Remy that were behind the legal strategy. And they were connected to the external attorneys. And I've said this from the very beginning of my writing and my podcasting, that the NCAA now is being run by lawyers and lobbyists, not by university presidents, not by conference commissioners. Everything's running through the lens of what they can get from Congress and how they can manage litigation to to go to the same protections and immunities that they've been trying to get since 2019. And that's why I think this press conference had the NCAA and Power Five lawyers and lobbyists' fingers all over it. And in the final analysis, yeah, Emmert takes some shots, and it's unfortunate for him that you have a person of Coach K's stature dissing him and throwing him some shade. But he's walking off that stage thinking, I accomplished my goal, and I got my Congress talking points in, I got my besieging and frivolous litigation talking points in. And I bobbed and weaved on the things that I don't want to talk about. And we're just going to move forward. And it's on to the behind the scenes full court press to eliminate external regulators. That's how he came into this press conference. That's how he left this press conference. And for that, he will continue to collect his $2.7 million salary. All right. So with that, I'm going to close this thing out. Really excited for these final four games. And I'm going to hunker down here in the heart of Tobacco Road for this Duke Carolina game and enjoy it. Just celebrate college basketball, celebrate the rivalry, celebrate all the wonderful things about college basketball and the people that truly give life to it. And those people do not include the Mark Emmerts of the world or the NCAA governing boards or the Power Five commissioners or all of their hired guns and minions who care about one thing and one thing only, and that is preserving the status quo or restoring the status quo and preserving their financial gravy trains. All right. So with that, I'm going to close this thing out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.